0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in History. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. I recently had a chance to talk to a very dear colleague, um, someone whom I teach with and deeply, deeply respect as a teacher and a scholar, and that is Thomas Kempel, about his new book, Intellectual Work and the Spirit of Capitalism. Hi hey I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in History. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. I recently had a chance to talk to a very dear colleague, um, someone whom I teach with and deeply, deeply respect as a teacher and a scholar. And that is Thomas Kempel about his new book, Intellectual Work and the Spirit of Capitalism, Weber's Calling. This came out with Palgrave Macmillan in 2014. Now, Tom and I both work at UBC, so we were able, um, luckily, to meet together physically and have this conversation about a book that I really, really love. So what the book does is it brings us into some of Weber's really most important, but also some of his most neglected work to give us a way to think about the form and the content of Weber's work, the ways that they mutually transform and reinforce and reflect one another, and also to give us a model for what it can look like to read text um, and in part read lecture text um, as a performance, as well as appreciating the content of what's being transmitted um, in the text itself. So here, um, Tom gives us a way to not just think about text in terms of its vocal performance, but also to read written words in a way that helps us understand um, the way they're voiced on the page and the way that it might influence and shape our own voice as readers um, and as thinkers who are in the world and working with um, some of the same kinds of problems about modernity, about what it is to be a self that Weber is writing about and engaging with the sensitivity to understanding Weber, not just as a performer, but also as a human being, um, is really, really notable in this work. And so we get invited into his home. We understand him as a son, as a husband, as a lover. Um, And so this is really, really interesting. So this is a book that is for you, um, even if you don't imagine yourself as being deeply interested in Weber, but are interested in narrative approaches to reading social sciences texts if you're interested in sociology. And there's a lot of engagement with the kind of intertextuality of Weber's work. So we learn about Tolstoy. We learn about Faust. Um, we learn about lots of works that Weber was kind of engaged with, including musicality and musical works. So it's a great book. I hope you have a chance to look at it. And it's um, really, really an honor and a pleasure to be able to talk with Tom about it. I mean, he's an amazing scholar and colleague, um, and his book is worth taking a look at um, just in terms of... Uh, you know, what it can look like to be an empathetic reader and human being coming to um, documents and writing a story about it. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy. And um, I'll just say straight up, this one really, really was a pleasure. um, And I hope you feel that way too. Thanks. I'm here today to talk with Thomas Kempel about his new book, Intellectual Work and the Spirit of Capitalism, Weber's Calling, Welcome to New Books in History, Tom, Thank and thanks you, for Carla. making time to talk with me. Um, so, Tom, can you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about how you came to the field? What made you a sociologist and brought you to sociology?
1: Well, it was kind of random. I never had a ma- I never majored in sociology as an undergrad. I, never, I didn't get an MA or a PhD in sociology. All my uh, really? training is in interdisciplinary studies. Social and political thought at York was my PhD. Um, But I always took courses. My most inspiring teachers were mainly sociologists, so they happened to be teaching in these other programs. And I thought, this is interesting, but I couldn't really find a way to make the field interesting enough to specialize in it. But eventually, when I finished my PhD, uh, I got my first uh, contract position in sociology at Concordia, and then my position here, and that's what made me a sociologist, was that I was basically labeled as one by virtue of being hired in a department that, uh, that was sociology. Awesome. So
0: mm-hmm. the book that we're talking about today, and we'll talk about this in much more detail, is all about Weber. But it's approaching Weber from, I think, a really wonderfully unusual perspective, at least relative to my experience with Weber in the past. So we'll get to the details. But first, how did you come to focus on Weber for this project? And what brought you to a decision to create a book-length object? about
1: Weber? Well, you know, I had been interested in Weber since my introductory sociology course at Wesleyan University, um, where we read The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, his great work that is in some ways central to this book. And I, um, because I did an interdisciplinary uh, university major, as it was called, I had to write a thesis, and that was on Weber. So I did my honors thesis yeah. on Max Weber <laughs> in 1984. That's how long I've been thinking and working on this. But my PhD was on, uh, Marx. We can talk a little bit about, more about that. And, uh, even as I was finishing, um, the, the book manuscript on which, uh, that, that my thesis was based on, I thought I could do something with a bunch of other thinkers as well. And Weber was the next one I planned out. And that was in 1993. So this is almost, uh, 20 years in the making. Um, uh, Thirty years in the making. If you do the math, um, twenty years, and uh, so that's what I thought I would want to do. So when I got my position here at UBC, that was going to be my next project. And uh, and what what stalled me or kept me going for so many years was that Weber's collected works were coming out um, of Munich, and I was uh, um, I, I realized I had a lot of work to do to keep up with the the the, the massive research being done in Munich on his life and his work, which was so much more than what we had known up to the up to the 1980s and 90s.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you just mentioned that you teach at UBC. And so for listeners, we actually are colleagues at UBC, and we teach together in an amazing program called Arts One. And I yeah. won't talk any more about that. Maybe it'll come up later. It's fabulous. But because of that, I happen to know that Tom does this thing with the book that we're going to start with that's a kind of... Fortune telling, sort of <laughs> prognostication. Tom, why don't you describe um, what this is? Well, one of the books
1: that Carl and I read in arts one is uh, Virgil's Aeneid, and um, the uh, you know in the Renaissance, even in earlier times, people would ask uh, kind of um, big questions of this greatest of great books, and open it up at random, and uh, and and that would give some kind of answer to their question, and that's called the Sortes Virgiliana. So since the book came out um, la- uh, la- a summer ago, um, in the last year, I've asked a few dozen friends or random people who come to my house or who I meet here and there, you know, do you have a question? And we'll do a sortes campiana <laughs> and open the book and randomly answer it. So if you want to ask a question, yes. then uh, we'll, we'll give it a try.
0: Yes. Okay. So my question is, will I finish writing my book this summer?
1: Okay, so you're going to op- okay. open the book randomly and I'm point. Opening the book randomly. And point. Pointing. Okay, so the word. <laughs> I, don't know if I want to know yet. We're on page 105 of the book, for those of you following along at home. And the word that, uh, that Carla pointed to was temporal spatial field. <laughs> and here's the sentence. So this is chapter three of the book, um, which we might get into a bit later. And the sentence that that phrase that word um, appears on, uh, reads as follows. In general terms, processes of association clear a precarious temporal spatial field or chronotope that mediates between the spheres of public and private life and establishes a realm of appearance that opens up a temporal gap between past and future. (laughs) And if I could offer an interpretation yes, of that, please, we spoke earlier about oh. your plans for the summer and taking time here in Vancouver in, June, in July and August mm-hmm. to open up that kind of temporal spatial field where you're going to write. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> and it's about that space between the public and the private life, between the reader and the writer. Mm-hmm. And in this part of the text, I'm, I'm actually talking about how Weber um, opens up, tries to open up that space through his speeches and his essays. So the, the book focuses on three particular uh, oral presentations that he gave um, and how he eventually uh, built those into his written work. And I think that's uh, what your project is this summer. I
0: cannot believe this works. <laughs> it, totally it always does. works. Yay! <laughs> so party games, listeners of my books in history, um, that you can do with Tom's book, <laughs> but you need him there to interpret. So, uh,
1: will you agree with that interpretation? I agree with that interpretation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think
0: that's really kind of oracular. And, okay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so the book. So as is probably clear um, from that exercise, the book itself looks at Max Weber as a kind of charismatic performer, um, as you put it. And it treats Weber's written and spoken utterances, and that's going to be important, thinking of text as a written utterance and thinking of the relationship between text and speech as modes of performance. Here, we're engaging with Weber um, not just in terms of the text that he wrote, but with his voice and thinking about ways that Weber's voice and our engagement with Weber's voice may help us understand our own voice um, or voices. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot happening here in terms of performance and voicing, and we'll get to that as well. Now, it looks at the literary structure of the arguments in these written and spoken performances and considers, among other things, um, the way that form, the way that certain narrative modes, the way that certain kind of forms of allegory can help us understand Weber anew and understand Weber's relationship to us as well. So we're going to get into all of this, right, over the course of our conversation. So let's dive in. Um, right in the introduction, one of the surprising things perhaps that listeners um, might find that they may not be expecting is we don't just meet Weber in this book. We also meet some members of Weber's family. Mm-hmm. Marianne or Marianne? Mariana Mariana. Mm-hmm. My New Jersey self wants to say Marianne.
1: <laughs> I can say that too. She's
0: a doll. <laughs> Mariana Weber um, shows up right at the beginning and we follow her and she follows us throughout the book. So can you talk about um, the importance of as we enter into our relationship with Weber in the book, the importance of reading with and through Mariana Weber for understanding what's happening
1: here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, one of the one of the opening pass an opening quotation an epigraph to the book is uh, where Mariana in her in her biography of her husband um, cites this moment where uh, a student on colleague and asked ask Weber, why do you do this work when it brings you so much happiness and, and it's so incredibly difficult for you? And his ironic answer, maybe even humorous, was, I want to see how much I can stand. <laughs> and I want to take that kind of personal connection that a student and his own wife has to Weber as the starting point. So we're going to meet, in the course of the book, Weber as a person, as much as we're going to meet him as a text or as a forbidding figure in the history of the social sciences. Um, And that becomes, I I try to hold that intention without turning it into a psychobiography or in turning it into a psychoanalysis, even though those are also things that that interest me quite a bit. And in particular, I want to bring in the domestic uh, and gendered character of the, this, this massive body of work as it was produced. Um, you know, so they they were uh, intensely devoted to one another. Mariana and Max. She was a great intellectual in her own right, a founder of the women's feminist movement, um, and writing in some ways a shadow or parallel text to her husband Max, um, who died in 1920, and she went on to live right through the 1950s. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that 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 uh, threat, that reception history, which comes first through her through his wife, um, was foregrounded, and highlighted right from the beginning of the book. And I return to it on and off in various uh, points throughout the book, particularly through his relationship to his mother. So one of the photographs, in fact, I included the book and analyzed in the final chapter is of Weber's mother. So when we think of this big masculine, uh, powerful voice and uh, dominant figure um, of his time, we have to see the women that are around him. And I wanted to make sure that was... Uh, that was stressed from the first lines of the book.
0: That's great. And I think it works really well. And also, as mm-hmm. listeners, um, we'll hopefully get a chance to hear by the end of our conversation. We not only meet um, Mariana and sort of see Weber as a human being through his relationships, and of course, this isn't part about sociology, and so relationships and associations become really, really important for mm-hmm. the, you know, understanding the content, but we also... Um, you take us into the domestic space of Mariana mm-hmm. and Max, by the end of it, when we we will talk about a sketch that was up on their wall mm-hmm. um, by the end of it. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think, a really wonderful opening out of Vapor as not just a voice, but as a person with mm-hmm. relationships. So you talk um, throughout the book, and this is something that is really, really important and very notable. You talk about the importance of form to what he's doing But also in your own form as a scholar, you engage Weber's work through figures and diagrams. And this Mm -hmm. is really, these come up in every chapter, and it's really a notable part of what's going on. You mention um, early in the book that diagrams are sort of talking pictures, right? Mm -hmm. And you talk about them in the context of what you call Weber's own broadly cinematic vision of the twin narratives of rationalization an enchantment. So we've got this idea of diagrams as talking pictures, um, sort of a cinematic vision. Can you talk f- about the importance of diagrams and diagrammatic engagements with Weber for you and in terms of what you're trying to do
1: with the book? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that comes from my own teaching practice. That when I present a difficult text in Arts 1 or in sociology, um, in my social theory, third year social theory classes, or my uh, graduate seminars. I initially try to sketch out um, in pictogramic form what I think the argument is, or how I think it could be figured. And often that comes from uh, metaphors and images that are built into the text itself. Um, so my all of my pictures, all of my diagrams take the form of an object: a window, um, a lectern, bifocals, a prism. Um, a, a machine um, uh, a pendulum, and those are my ways of getting, gaining access to some core idea within the text and with Weber it's actually lends it to, the text lends itself to that because there 's so much visual metaphors that are built into it and i wanted and so when I was thinking of how to put the book together, I realized that what I wanted to do was organize each chapter around an image, around a diagram that in many ways condensed and provided in a snapshot, um, to use another visual metaphor, what I thought the core arguments or way of approaching the themes of that particular chapter were. Um, so I think of them as snapshots, and then I think of them as sort of stills within a series of, of uh, cinematically um, juxtaposed Images mm-hmm. and in that sense, I call them kind of talking pictures because I want to make sure that that play of voice and image um, is 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 um, stressed with each uh, topic or theme that I address throughout the book.
0: And it works really well, also, just in terms of its engagement with the argument. I mean, you talk um, in the I think introductory chapter. About Weber's vi- window, Weber's window. Mm-hmm. To me? <laughs> yes. Weber's window, yeah. <laughs> and the importance of understanding theory as a kind of disciplined observation. So, mm-hmm. theory is a kind of disciplined observation. So, I think it really works in terms of the work that the book is doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get to Faust's study. Okay. So the book is organized into two parts. Part one is called Faust's study, and you'll listeners will um, hear or see why that is um, in a little bit. So the first chapter takes us into um, Weber's lectures, and you make a point here, I mean, it's something that we've talked a little bit about, that the structure of his ideas is inseparable from the content, and understanding one is really important for understanding the others. Mm-hmm. You talk about the form of his lectures and his spoken commentaries as an effort to distinguish a voice of sociology, right? and to help us understand its value for attending to issues of so this is the context that we're talking about here. Now, you introduce us to the idea of the scholarly lecture as a speech act and as a communicative speech act specifically. Mm-hmm. So could you um, talk about that for us what's important for us to understand about the lecture, the scholarly lecture as a speech act, for us to understand the larger work you're doing in mm-hmm. this
1: chapter? Well, I, I, I want to just recall... Uh, Scholars to the fact that so much that our ideas begin through spoken dialogue, through internal monologues, through everyday conversations, and then they take on these other forms when we're presenting a lecture in front of an audience. As Weber's "Science and Politics" as a vocation were those are two of the core um, texts and originally speeches or lectures that are that the book hinges on. And so, when we think about those as oral presentations. It offers a different kind of, um, understanding of who audience and context are and who audience and context are for Weber at the time and for us re reading these, gaining a new insight and access to them, uh, dozens of years later. So I, I want to be able, I want to highlight, first of all, the kind of classical oratorical, uh, character of, of these lectures. So they begin, you know, with a, um, with an opening kind of uh, speech. You know, I'm going to, in the politics lecture, he says, this speech, which I give at your request, is going to disappoint you in a number of ways. I'm not going to take a political position on things, even though I'm paraphrasing now, this is the end of the First World War. We've just been defeated, we Germans, and so you probably want me to say something really political. Well, I'm not going to, right? (laughs) The, The science lecture begins a bit more excitingly, but a bit still, you know, kind of starting from the outside. I'm not going to get into uh, whether any member of this audience should really take up scholarship, science, the intellectual life as a vocation. Um, uh, You'll have to decide that yourselves, but I will be able to offer you some, uh, some perspectives and some comparative points of view where you might come up. Uh, to make such a decision, so when we think about these these pieces as not just essays or as grand statements that speak to his overarching theses and the things that he 's famous for, um, uh, capitalism and bureaucracy are his you know twin focal points for his life work, but if we think of them as these kinds of situated statements or speech acts as 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 you put it there then then I think it resonates with different kinds of significance or meaning. Um, And that's what I try to explore uh, right from the beginning of that first chapter.
0: That's right. And I think understanding them as speech acts also helps us understand the importance of the audience as well. So you make a point here um, when talking about this that giving and receiving a lecture involves not just an act on the part of the speaker, but also an act on the part of the audience. It's an act of understanding, and it's mm-hmm. an active process of understanding mm-hmm. that's happening on the part of the audience. And I think framing these not as texts, but as events that involve actions in, you know, among both parties is really, really useful. Mm-hmm. Now, you specifically are asking us to understand Weber's lectures here in the context of his notion of, and of the importance of the notion of value freedom. Mm-hmm. So, because this is a notion that comes up later in the book as well, can you talk about this? what is value freedom, mm-hmm. and what does this have to do with what he's doing here?
1: yeah well your your the comment that you just made in the question you just asked each speak to um, kind of things that fame Weber's famous for that I have to pick up and that I picked up and off tried to offer a new twist on one is the idea of understanding you know Weber's known as the interpretive sociologist which in um, German is Verstehende Soziologie, so a kind of understanding, sociolo- a sociology of understanding. And I wanted to make sure that, that understanding is put into an interactive, conversational, oral, as well as textual context. It's not just what we understand by the people around us, through, uh, but it's also what we understand by a text. So I wanted to make sure that we broke open that concept of verstehen that he's um that he's so famous for introducing into the study of into sociology. It's why he's become the classic. But the other thing that he offered to sociology which I think is still persistently misinterpreted is this idea of value freedom, wertfreiheit. So it's usually it was originally translated as neutrality and that's in some ways distorting or misleading because Weber's actually making a value Judgment about value freedom—that we need to be open to the variety of values that are open to the scholar to understand, to interpret, to uh, to, to study—and so that's why Weber, in some ways, uses the principle of value freedom, which is a kind of principle of research, also to open up these lectures and to say, "I'm not going to offer you value positions. I'm not going to give you value judgments, but." For sure, I consider politics I consider German politics he says um, to be of great value to us today, so I'm going to take that as a given while I study where we are uh, in a modern political state or in a modern university, um, which I where we take the value of truth to be an absolute given, okay. But I want to I want to open up those questions and understand where they came from and what they might mean for us today, rather than um, prescribing to you, audience members, what we should all be thinking.
0: Yeah. Thank you. So this part of the book is called Faust's Study, and yes. I, I mentioned that we would be getting to that. So let's do that now. Now this is the first of many um, examples throughout these chapters where you're showing us the ways that. Weber is actually engaging with a particular literary or musical or poetic or or other kind of figure as a way to sort of help us understand his mode of performance and how he's engaging with these figures. And here it is Goethe's Faust, right? Mm -hmm. So he actually quotes Goethe's Faust um, in the two vocation lectures, and you talk about this as a way of his employment of sociological allegory. Mm-hmm. So, because this is really important, can you briefly um, take us into this? What's happening with Faust here, mm-hmm. and why is that important for understanding allegory?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. My 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 opening kind of introductory chapter is called um, "Sociological Allegory in the Va- in the Age of Weber." Mm-hmm. So, one of the big theses of the book is that sociology is itself a kind of allegory. When we're reading about other people, you know, other people in the downtown east side of Vancouver or in China, or when we're reading about bureaucrats or um, social, uh, micro-social interactions or other in our sociology texts, we're also reading about other other people. (laughs) We're reading about how other people interact and also reading about ourselves. In that sense, sociology has an inherently allegorical structure. You know, the Greek word allegory means speaking publicly otherwise, speaking otherwise, right? And I'm thinking that's a sort of part of what it is to speak sociologically, is to speak otherwise about things that we take for granted, things that are common sense, things that we don't necessarily think of speaking otherwise, the roles we take up, to use sociological terms, um, the kind of functions that we serve even in everyday life. Mm -hmm. So when, I'm do, when I get to the Goethe stuff, this is part of a bigger, much bigger project of mine. My book, my, the first part of my book on Marx is also called Faust Study, and I may use that as a title for any other book I write in the future. And the idea is, first of all, that I want to situate the reader, the writer, and in this case also the speaker and the listener in a study, that is, in our office, in the place where we meet students or where we write our books, or where we develop our lecture notes uh, you know, for class. I want to put, situate us like Faust in our study with the whole world open to us, where we're striving and desiring to kind of get, a, get out of that, even if that means maybe making a pact with the devil, as we sometimes do. <laughs> well, I found that really interesting that both Marx, Weber, and these are some other thinkers that I'm going to take up in future work, I think, It's strategic, kind of almost unconscious or subconscious moments. They quote, they cite a passage from Goethe's Faust. And in this case, it's in both lectures, both the sciences of vocation and politics as a vocation. In the final pages, final moments, he quotes the same line to his younger audience, Faber does. And he says, Bedenk, der Teufel, der ist alt, so werdet alt, ihn zu verstehen. He says, remark, you know, note, the devil is old. So grow old to know him, to understand him. <laughs> so he's telling his younger think, his younger students that, you know, growing old or be, having experience or understanding things isn't a matter of what's on your birth certificate. It's about the experience you accumulate. And he's trying to make that point not just as an older person talking to a younger audience, but also in the bigger scheme of things about the accumulation of history. And I found it interesting that he would in some ways take on a value position, take on a personal stance, not in his own voice, but sort of by ventriloquizing or projecting it into the voice of Mephistopheles, making a satirical point in Goethe's Faust to a young uh, student. And so I take us back into that scene and try to unpack and relocate the reader and the listener into the scene from of Goethe's Faust that Weber's quoting at that moment, which happens to replicate, in some ways, in a satirical way, the scene of Weber speaking to his younger, younger audience.
0: Right. Okay, so that's awesome. And for listeners, he did that from memory. Oh, he quoted that, so that, that? scene okay. from memory. <laughs> Just so that you know and if you're impressed as much as I am. <laughs> So (laughs) as we move um, into the second chapter, let's kind of keep going with this. We move into Ben Franklin's glasses or Ben Franklin's bifocals. This is a chapter that asks, um, what does it mean not just to read Weber, but also to voice? Um, So coming back to voicing, voice the questions he poses and to reassess the problems in our own way. You You talk about Weber's lesson about modern professions here and specifically bivocal reasoning the distinctive, as you put it, form of Occidental rationality that promotes both freedom and discipline at the same time. So this is the kind of um, stage that we're um, setting right now. Now, in exploring this and bringing us into this um, bivocal reasoning, Mm you bring us into a figure of bifocals in the sense of glasses and the figure of Benjamin Franklin Mm -hmm. specifically. Um, So how, um, can you talk a little bit about Ben Franklin? What does Ben Franklin have to do with what Weber is interested in in this part of the book, in this part of the chapter? And what's important for us to understand about Ben Franklin and bifocals here?
1: Yeah, I guess this is a point to remark why I've structured the book and the chapters the way that I have. So it's a two-part book with three chapters in the first part and two in the second part which is exactly the structure of Weber's most famous essay, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. So I take that work as kind of my 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 uh, my blueprint for uh what Weber discusses in or what the the main focus and uh um, emphasis for my interest um his speeches and writings in his later work. So I'm kind of saying that the later works are kind of restatements of the earlier work. And so I want to use the earlier work and its structure as a way of, uh, of organizing my own ideas. So in this chapter, I am talking about the rise of science and technology as itself a product of capitalism. That happens to be also more or less what Weber's um, uh, beginning to study in the second chapter of his Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, where the figure of Benjamin Franklin is central. Okay, so yeah, that's how we got her. to. Uh, that's how we get to uh, Franklin. Franklin he sees as the uh, as an historical individual, as he puts it, who embodies the spirit of capitalism without actually its institution yet. So it's not quite a spirit of industrial capitalism that was to emerge in the 19th century. Franklin writing and speaking and being a celebrity in the 18th century. Embodies that spirit, but without materializing it in in, in specific structures and institutions. Um, now, what Weber doesn't really address anywhere in his work, but which he's certainly aware of, um, because he's read quite a lot of uh, Weber of uh, Franklin's work, he's read his biography. A family friend translated the biography and gave it to the fourteen-year-old Weber for as a as a um, uh, as a um, Christmas present. Um, But what he's certainly aware of is that Franklin isn't just the man who said time is money, the man who said work hard in your calling or work hard uh, because that will show that you're uh, credit worthy. He's not just the the utilitarian, ascetic priest of uh, of modern day capitalism. He's also a scientist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's also an inventor. He's also a diplomat. So he's a popular author. He's a, he's he's a literary celebrity. He's a politician of sorts, and he's also a kind of scientist. So that's where I then take the figure of the bifocals, one of uh, reputedly one of Franklin's greatest inventions, and say this is one way of looking at Weber's um, Weber's own approach to sociology itself as a kind of product of capitalism, <laughs> just like modern science is, right? So what, does, what do the bifocals offer us? They offer us a close-up view of, of, um, of, of things. I'm wearing actually progressives right now. And, you know, when I'm looking at a text, I need to look at the lower part of those progressives the bottom part of the bifocals. And when I look across English Bay in the room where we are, I use the upper part to see the bigger picture. I'm saying sociology is a way of bringing together those close-up and long-distance points of view. And because we have binocular vision, we humans, we also have to somehow coordinate and adjust the, the different perspectives of the right and the left eye and the right and the left lens in a kind of parallax view where... That's how we see depth. And I'm saying that's more than a metaphor. It's actually a kind of way in which sociology presents itself as what I called a bifocal technology in the way that I think in uh, Franklin also presented his own autobiography in bifocal terms, right? Mm-hmm. He, the individual, this peculiar, unique, eccentric man is also the embodiment of the new American republic. Um, and I'm saying that's kind of the model for what Weber's doing in sociology. I also call it bivocal mm-hmm. because the F, you know, the V is a voiced F. <laughs> and when you add the voice, it becomes vocal because um, uh, p- partly to keep the theme of, um, of the spoken text, of the spoken language uh, um, um, forefront, But also because I think Weber does think in terms of different tones, different ways of hearing things. Mm -hmm. So I'm now interpreting this idea of value freedom as how do we know that someone's making a judgment? Well, it's not just necessarily the logical structure of a sentence that we're saying that is bad. But you could also just do it from your tone of voice, Mm -hmm. the way you hear it. And I'm saying the same word could be heard or spoken in different ways and offered in different tones, different Ways of voicing of hearing it, and I'm saying that's part of what's at uh, also um, uh, what's what's driving Weber's um, attempt to distinguish these different ways of hearing and different ways of seeing.
0: Awesome. So mentioning hearing and listening and also calling mm-hmm. um, just before brings us really nicely into the next chapter. Okay. So thank you for that. So the next chapter moves us from Weber and Franklin and this idea of perspectival seeing and bifocals as a way to get at the vocations of science and politics and brings us into a way of understanding Weber as a, what you call a scholarly narrator. Okay? So here, um, as you put it, um, just to kind of set the stage for listeners, you say his writings use narrative convention, so this is really important, to tell the story of the development, the decline, and disappearance of significant culture carriers in the history of the modern Occident. So culture, this idea of culture car- carriers is really mm-hmm. important. Narrative structure, let's get into it. You talk here a lot about um, charisma and the charisma of reason as vanishing mediator. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's a vanishing mediator mm-hmm. and why should we care?
1: Okay. <laughs> um, so we're in that second chapter, um, my primary or one of my, the, the, the historical figure that I'm engaged with, especially in the second part, becomes central is uh, Franklin in the second chapter, third chapter, mm-hmm. rather. Um, it's, uh, it's Luther, mm-hmm. you know, and Luther then becomes the pivotal figure in Weber's entire life work. For the birth of the modern age because he gives subjective expression to something happening in um, the modernization of culture okay. so the protestant ethic in particular that uh, that uh, is voiced through um, through luther's sermons and speeches through his speech at the diet of worms where he says here i stand i can do no other which weber takes as the model of the modern politician mm-hmm. Interestingly, because he wanted, uh, uh, Luther says we have to give to see render unto Caesar. What is Caesar's, um, rather than become that Caesar. Right. Um, so, um, take the idea of the vanishing mediator, um, from a great little piece that's often over ignored by Frederick Jameson that he wrote in 1973. um, so, Jameson is a literary critic, a cultural critic, not a sociologist, um, but he has a great piece that says that, that reads Weber in terms of what he calls the narrative convention or figure of the vanishing mediator. Mm-hmm. So, in some sense, you could say that where the Protestant ethic was needed to give birth to the modern day industrial work ethic and eventually to the spirit of capitalism. It drops out of the picture. It vanishes. Mm-hmm. We don't need a Luther. We don't even need a Calvin in the generation later. We don't even need an explicit commitment to Protestant work values in order to be, to have our, nos- our noses, um, you know, at the grindstone of the cap- of capitalist work. Mm-hmm. None of that is needed so much to motivate it. It was needed to trigger it, to start it, but not to motivate it. It becomes a kind of vanishing mediator. And I think that's kind of the overall narrative structure of Weber's work. So this is the middle chapter of the book, and I'm saying this is a key moment because Weber sees, in fact, almost any kind of figure in history, any kind of sociological type as a potentially a vanishing mediator, mm-hmm. above all that of the charismatic politician, which is what I'm primarily focusing on in that chapter.
0: And you talk about this um, Luther and the charismatic politician – specifically um, in terms of and as a way of opening up for us the idea of beruf, right mm-hmm. calling or profession or vocation. So can you t- speak a little bit to that? Um, because that becomes the sort of calling um, profession, this idea um, becomes really important and also calling and vocality and listening is also a way that you take us into the text itself It's mm-hmm. a kind of performance. And
1: it's something calling out to us, right? So that's the double meaning of my subtitle, Weber's Calling. It's his calling because he's a scholar. He's doing intellectual work. Um, It's his vocation. It's also Weber calling out to us through his texts, through the personal connection we can gain from him through Mariana Weber's biography, for example. Mm -hmm. So Baruch is, for me, the quintessential example of that bivocal reasoning. On the one hand... It's introduced. Um, it's in some ways secularized, and uh, still rendered in its theological context by Luther, who says that God, who translates the Bible, particular passages from Saint Paul and from the Apocrypha, to read to read in such a way that that believers um, uh, understand God to be placing us within a certain position in life. Mm-hmm. We then take up a certain calling in life, because God commands us to. But of course, that sort of drops out of the picture when calling, beruf in German, mm-hmm. becomes secularized, becomes stripped of its religious connotations, and becomes merely a job, um, a, an occupation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We sort of preserve that in English by, with the idea of vocation, which could be Catholic or religious, but it could also just be, you know, what I really want to do in life, what I really think is my right, the, the thing I'm supposed to do, or what I really, really want to do, right? And I'm saying that's the, for, for Weber, that is the pivotal car, the pivotal moment in modern history, was when a religious calling becomes a secular occupation. In German, those words, calling and occupation, are translated by the same, are, are uh, contained in the same word, the roof. And the word roof is that word calling. But it it doesn't have that kind of religious connotation anymore as it did in Luther's day.
0: Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So as we move from part one to part two, we move from Faust's study to Tolstoy's keynote. There's some really great stuff happening here. We could easily spend another hour just on this part of the book, and we won't, but we'll get into some of it. Okay. So first of all, Tolstoy. Um, now, Tolstoy's work comes up um, all over the place um, in this part of the book, and you make a point, um, especially as we sort of get into the later part of this, um, these two chapters, of the importance of reading Weber through Tolstoy, right? Mm-hmm. And the importance actually of Tolstoy for Weber himself. Mm-hmm. He was actually planning on writing a book about Tolstoy, mm-hmm. right, that was sort of mm-hmm. going to be for the women in his life. So can you maybe um, talk Briefly about the significance of Tolstoy for Weber um, as a way to open up this part of the book, and then we'll get into some details.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think Tolstoy has a um, a personal significance and a kind of ethical cultural significance. So, personal significance for Weber um, through almost throughout his career, um, recommended to him by his mother, his religious, devoted, pietist Christian mother. Read Tolstoy. This will make you a believer again, maybe, she was telling him in some of the letters. Um, and so he 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 read the Kreutzer Sonata. He read The Death of Ivan Illich. He read War and Peace, of course, and Resurrection. War and Peace and Resurrection are the two novels that uh, I think he was most engaged with and that I use as a structuring principle for the last two chapters of the book. But it's also, Tolstoy also has an ethical, cultural meaning and significance for him, because um, uh, countercultural or even bohemian or even conservative intellectuals of the turn of the 19th to the 20th century in Germany were all reading the new translations of Tolstoy. And Weber was right up on that. And, uh, and Tolstoy was a figure who seemed to represent what Weber calls the quintessence of the ethics of conviction. You know, Tolstoy grew up as an aristocrat very Affluent, He had a huge estate, um, and he wanted to give all that up, give back his, his property to the peasants. And in some ways that was completely failed. Right? He, his, his marriage fell apart because he couldn't hold his household together, and the peasants didn't really understand what he was doing in giving them their land. He says, but it's your land. They couldn't quite capture that. Mm-hmm. So Weber sees Tolstoy embodying the kind of ethical, paradoxes of that ethics of conviction. And Weber wants to take a strong stance, not against the ethics of conviction, but supplemented by what he sees as an ethics of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that's so in that way, uh, Tolstoy, not just as a philosopher or as a, as a novelist, um, as a short story writer, but also as a philosopher as an, and as an ethicist, provides a foil for Weber's uh, sociology.
0: Awesome. So in chapter four, this is perfect. In chapter four, um, you're taking us into, among other things, Weber's engagement with Tolstoy, but also Weber's engagement with a few other works as a way to understand the importance for him of the notion of an ethics of conviction, as you mentioned, and the notion of an ethics of responsibility, and the idea or the capacity of reconciling the tensions between these two. So, He uses here allegories of war and peace, and this is where Tolstoy comes in um, at the end of the chapter in War and Peace specifically, that project what you call an image of what an ethics of responsibility and conviction might look like in this new world order and new um, conceived in terms of the 300 years that you mentioned separating the peace of Westphalia in 1648 Mm -hmm. and the Declaration of Human Rights. In 1948, and the transformations of the capitalist system within mm-hmm. that. Okay, so to understand these allegories of war and peace, you bring us into Weber's engagement with three works and three sort of moments. One is this moment of the citizen and the signori in Machiavelli's Florentine histories. Then you bring us into a moment from the Bhagavad Gita, and also a moment from the brothers Karamazov. Mm-hmm. So, for you, can you pick? one of those three that you're most interested in and mm-hmm. just kind of give us a glimpse into what's happening
1: okay <laughs> i think I'll, i think i'll take the one that seems to be the most counterintuitive or the most uh controversial the one with the Bhagavad Gita.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: um so weber has has he's delivering um a le- his lecture on politics as a vocation in january of 1919 so the war has been lost um and he uh, he's also finished his uh, his monograph on Buddhism and Hinduism. He's also been completing monographs on Taoism and Confucianism and on Islam and on early Christianity. I mean, the guy's going really to town on doing a comprehensive encyclopedic overview of the comparative sociology of religion. And he... he His approach is kind of philological. It works with translations. He's trying to compare the Protestant work ethic with other kinds of work ethics or economic ethics elsewhere in the world. And he says, well, you know, the Hindu Dharma is another kind of work ethic. And the Hindu Dharma is sort of canonized or codified in this classic of classic Brahmin texts, the Bhagavad Gita. That's what he says in his sociology of of Hinduism and Buddhism. And here he makes a very different use of it for the purposes of making a statement to his audience about where we Germans are after the war. And he's also making a statement about, in some ways, um, uh, alluding to a a kind of bohemian, even proto-New Age idea of Buddhism and of Hinduism as being peaceable, as being, uh, you know, at um, uh, one with nature. Well, the idea of the caste system um, includes the, the the principle of the warrior and the warrior who must kill his own family, as in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, that's what our duty has asked us to do as in in this most horrible of great wars. Um, we've had to kill our own people or our own uh, cousins in France or elsewhere as in, in the name of the German state. So he cites the Bhagavad Gita, which is a moment a kind of freeze frame. So it's interesting the way it's, it's spliced into the um, Rama into the uh, Mahabharata um, as a kind of freeze frame, a sort of frozen moment where Arjuna and Krishna are having a dialogue. So it's a moment of peace within chaos and war. And um, Krishna is telling um, Arjuna, yeah, you have to kill your own people. This is this is what the warrior's dharma is. And Weber cites that as as both uh, as as a, as, an, as a principle, I would say, of of uniting the ethics of conviction and an ethics of responsibility. So, what your responsibility is in that moment. It's another moment where he projects his uh, a value judgment of a, a viewpoint outside of his own immediate context into, in this case, a mythical Mm -hmm. orientalist, Mm -hmm. admittedly, context of uh, the Bhagavad Gita. So he doesn't actually state his own position. He projects it out to the text itself.
0: So this is, thank you so much. Um, So this is great. And this engagement with Weber's engagement with other work is also something that we see in the next chapter. And this is the Mm -hmm. fifth chapter, Resurrecting Charisma, Weber's Mm -hmm. Pendulum. So here you give us, and I'll just mention for listeners without asking you to explain verbally what's going on in the diagram on page 166, uh, the figure of Weber's Pendulum. And this is a way of bringing us into Weber's notions of charisma and of calling once again. Now, the chapter pays special attention, so heads up for listeners who are particularly interested in music and musicality, this chapter pays special attention to musicality and Weber's vocation lectures by looking at citations of an aria, a sonnet, and an oracle, as you put it in the book, in a series of allusions to Tolstoy's writings on the fundamental questions of the meaning of modern death, the meaning of modern science, and the meaning of modern life. So the meaning of modern death... Well, actually, I'll start from the bottom and work my way up. For understanding Weber's engagement with the problem of the meaning of the modern life, you take us into one of Shakespeare's sonnets. For understanding um, Weber's engagement with the meaning of modern science, you take us into Isaiah and the Night Watchman's Call. And for understanding the meaning of modern death, and this is what I'd like to ask you to Mm -hmm. talk about, you take us into Wagner, Mm -hmm. uh, um, Sigmund's Lament, What does death mean in a world, as you put it, that has been stripped of any promise of an afterlife and where mortality is placed under the rational control of technological Mm progress? So would you take us briefly into this? What's happening with his engagement with the Valkyries and with this idea of death?
1: Yeah, well, you know, because so much has been written on Weber, there's very few new things to discover. Mm -hmm. But I did discover something. And I saw in Weber's lecture notes, which have been published as part of the collected works, that he had, had originally made a reference in his uh, um, in his politics as a vocation lecture when it was orally delivered to, um, Sigmund's lament from the um, from the ring the the cycle the ring cycle um, the the, um, the Valkyries. Mm-hmm. So I thought that's interesting because I know he makes reference to it in the revisions to the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism that he was working on in 1919 and 1920, so after he gave this lecture. So what would it have meant for him to cite that particular moment where um, Zygmunt is saying, you know, I'm ready to give up heaven? You know, right. I'm ready to give to give up Valhalla.
0: He's in love with his sister, exactly. Right? And his dad is like, you know, come up here. He's like, no, I'm gonna stay here with my sister. It is <laughs> a
1: very strange thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the interesting thing is that this does open on to a whole biographical side of Weber as well. You know, his lover Elsa von Richthofen at this time. Um, uh, they would listen to Wagner together. They go to Wagner concerts in Munich together. He. His sister, Weber's sister, introduced him to Wagner when they were kids, and they would listen to that. Really interesting wow. that they loved Wagner. And so Wagner becomes, I think, in some ways, this, this, this kind of portal to a whole dimension of Weber's emotive, emotional, musical, artistic life. Um, Weber's other uh, had a romantic interest in, um, in, um, in another woman who was a, who was a Wagnerian pianist and that she probably inspired um the the um the manuscript that he wrote on the sociology of music in 1910 1911 which has been published as in english as the rational and sociological foundations of music so in some ways i think that weber is 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 hitting a keynote here <laughs> he's hitting a wagnerian motif <laughs> um and uh and I think it again speaks to the problem of war and peace, but also to the problem of life and death. And so it's it's kind of like an ultimate moment. It's interesting that this vanishes, this mediating figure of Zygmunt and of Wagner vanishes from the published version of politics as a vocation. Um but in some ways it's it's a it's a sight to a, a moment to relish, as I try to do in that chapter, in that section of the chapter, as um a possible inspiration for what I'm calling the resurrection of charisma. Because charisma is what gets ground down, what gets erased, which gets muted with the rise of bureaucratic capitalism and a bureaucratic state. And in some ways, I think he's kind of drawing from that that, that inspirational source, um, at least in the spoken version of the lecture when he does cite
0: Bach. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and this is also just to mark for listeners without um, necessarily asking you to go into too much detail. I want to keep you for another two hours, right? Um, which we could. Um, this, uh, you also take us into, again, the, what we can gain through reading Weber through Tolstoy. And here you mm-hmm. discuss not uh, War and Peace, which we did in the previous chapter, but Tolstoy's resurrection. And this, uh, what you call the Tolstoyan keynote, um, mm-hmm. right? Concerning the meaning of life and death and revolution. So um, listeners who are particularly interested in that aspect of Weber and Tolstoy will also find a lot here um, in that respect. Mm -hmm. Now, in lieu of a conclusion or as a conclusion, there is a chapter called Interim Reflections, Intellectual Work and the Spirit of Capitalism. And this final chapter looks at how three figures from Weber's life, a photograph, a sketch and a grid, as you call it, project alternative visions and dissonant voices. Of modernity. So let's get into at least one or two of these. Okay. There's a photo, a sketch, and a grid. The photo is of a thinker on stage, right? Or the photo brings us into at least the context of imagining a thinker on stage. And this is a photograph of a space that's at once a bookshop, right? A, a sort of an art hall and a lecture hall. Mm-hmm. So can you ta- tell, us, tell us a little bit about the photograph?
1: Sure. I would say this is my second, my main claim to fame, and it's so minor that it has to be modest, not falsely modest. But I did, when I was doing my research for this in 1999 and then again in 2001, um, I just, I wanted to find out where Weber actually gave these two lectures, Science and Politics as a Vocation. I knew that it was called the Steinecke Kunstsaal und um, Buchhandlung, the Steinecke art hall and bookstore i wanted to find out who the name where that came from papa steinica i found out kind of a local celebrity who owned it and i found out that it wasn't even at the university of munich as mariana weber um assumed she wasn't there at the lectures um weber was teaching in munich rather than his hometown in um in heidelberg at the time and I thought this is interesting um, that that this is a space outside the university. It's not a university lecture. Mm-hmm. It's it's where uh, lots of different political, artistic, and intellectual figures would gather mm-hmm. for all kinds of things. Thomas Mann gave readings and lectures at oh. this Schwanstall. And when I looked, and so I thought I'm going to go find this. And I looked all over, you know, with my bad German and whatever help I could get. And then I found out that across the street me was the city library from where I just found a place to live in my second visit uh, in Munich, and that in there they had a this photograph and I thought this is so cool and the people who were putting who I was, who I was studying with were um, um, editing and compiling Weber's collected works I' never seen it before mm-hmm. and when we looked at it we saw this is like this is really not a lecture hall in the conventional sense it's more like a theater mm-hmm. and I thought about that. Later, when I was reading Peter Sloterdijk um, and his book called The Thinker on the Stage, and I thought, this is, this is the kind of vapor that I really want the reader of my book to be left with. I want them to think of a thinker on the stage mm-hmm. who's performing in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. And who's performing in front, of, in front of a very, very complex, different, uh, diverse audience of intersecting cultural spheres, mm-hmm. you know, from different walks of life. And we do have some, you know, first-hand accounts. You know, um, Horkheimer um, was at one of these lectures. There were some other great figures. and So we do have a sense that, that it was that, that is the kind of space that it was. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make – I I was very happy to find the photograph. I wasn't sure what to do with it. And when I had this idea that I would replicate what Weber calls at the end of his – the first volume of uh, the collected essays on the um, – Sociology of Religion. His interim reflection. I thought this is. I want to put this in my interim reflection and let that be uh, a moment for the for the reader to gather their image of Weber and give it some focus. Perfect.
0: So there's also um, a sketch. So I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation that you actually took us into Mariana or Marianne for Jersey <laughs> listeners like me. Mariana um, and Max's home, and you bring us here um, in this. Um, final chapter on Interim Reflections into an image that's on their wall and also take us into some related images. Death as Savior, Mm -hmm. really a resting image that's Mm -hmm. reproduced here in the book. Um, Can you maybe sort of bring us home here by um, talking a little bit about that importance of
1: that? Sure. Um, Literally
0: bringing us home and figuratively. Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it actually takes us uh, back to Weber's life with Mariana in Heidelberg. Um, so not not his final couple of years in Munich, but to Heidelberg, where they moved in 1906, 1907. And for Weber's very first, uh, um, uh, or, or for their very first wedding anniversary in 1990, or 1892, 93, I can't remember, uh, Weber gave his wife uh, collected sketches of the avant-garde graphic artist Max Klinger. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because you know he's a huge influence on Dali, on De Kirico, um, and Weber was early in on the market, you could say, and I say that deliberately because by 1906, 1907, um, they they wanted to they wanted to move permanently to um, and purchase the uh, the the villa along the Neckar of Weber's mother. Mm-hmm. And to do that, they sold their Max Klinger portraits. <gasps> so this particular sketch is a fascinating sketch for for so many reasons, but part of the biographical aspect of it does interest me. Mm-hmm. He must have had four, he must have had maybe a dozen of these, and they sold them to uh, um, uh, to uh, uh, an art gallery or a museum in, in Posen, now part of Poland. This particular one is called Death is Savior, and it seems to be based it seems to be Klinger channeling Dostoevsky and the figure of the dead Christ and Holbein. And it, there's also a quotation from Hamlet at the base of a figure of a, of, of a dead body. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're sort of looking into the sepulcher, the, the the tomb of a dead person. And there's figures on the top that seem to be fleeing death. And, it's not really clear exactly what it means, but I, I am reading it as a kind of meta picture, uh, the way W.J.T. Uh, Mitchell says, a picture that reflects on its own status and its own framing as an object, as a picture, and not just as a window or a representation of something else. Um, mm-hmm. I can't really reproduce my analysis of it. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I, I was know kind of happy for, uh, for, the way, for, for the way that that too became kind of the final um, image of, uh, again, uh, chant, you know, drawing on Peter Sloterdijk, of the thinker as a kind of uh, uh, person in suspended anim- an animation. Mm-hmm. Toad shine is the way uh, Sloterdijk does it. So this sort of dead body in the sketch itself becomes a figure for the thinker as somehow beyond life and death or at least mm-hmm. suspending life and death
0: in that way. It's a super arresting image to... Um to close the book with, mm-hmm. and it's, um, so I'll just, listeners, go to that chapter, definitely, <laughs> um, and definitely check it out. And so there's also a third figure that we won't have time really to talk about, but I'll just mention, and this is a grid, and this is a grid um, that looks at um, the idea of a connectionist man of capitalist mm-hmm. networks, and you take us into the grid as a way of understanding different faces of what call what you call the entrepreneurial self.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's
0: also there for yep. listeners.
1: And that's so, also based on, um, it's, ta- it's actually, the the model of it is taken from uh, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Awesome. So it takes us back to an earlier Full chapter circle. of the book, yeah.
0: Perfect. Um, so there are also a bunch of appendices which are there as paratext. So again, um, I'll just mark that for listeners because it's actually a really important invitation that these appendices, um, well, that you are offering to us by offering us these appendices. It's an invitation to kind of make the book our own in a way and engage these um, materials as ways of really deeply engaging the text and critically. And so, um, thank you for that. There's also really, really interesting and useful, and thank that's you. there too. Right yes. So, Tom, um, we've come to, if you can believe it, the end of our hour. Um, there's a, a whole lot of the book um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? There's a lot going on here. It's a very, very rich study. Is there anything specifically that we didn't talk about but that you'd like to mention?
1: listeners um i don't want to be one of those interviewees that says no we covered it all but i can be one of those interviewees that takes you to the cover of the book oh yeah okay. do it take us there Let's um do it. so the cover of the book is the flip side of page two mm-hmm. of the um uh, it's an image from page two of the um politics is a vocation lecture his lecture notes themselves I think this was probably the cover page. Mm-hmm. So it was the cover page, and then he took um, he took the flip side and put it over, and then had the two pages facing. So that's why it's page two. Mm-hmm. That's my own hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And what he actually says there, which I think kind of captures the entire freaking book, is he says it's a few notations. It says Paul P O L politics as vocation means by virtue of actual position by virtue of office as opposed to by virtue of God calling us, mm-hmm. or by virtue of even the electorate calling us, the public, the citizens. Mm-hmm. And I thought Weber was really thinking hard about, well, what does politics, especially politics, not just his own chosen vocation, mm-hmm. scholarship, science, but what does politics mean today? Um, that's that's, what the, that, that's and, and what's distinctive about it? Well, we become political by virtue of our actual position, and by virtue of an office that we hold. Mm -hmm. And that's both the tragedy and the promise, I'd say, of modern politics. Mm -hmm. So very happy to find that. It's it's part of the manuscript that was not originally – the manuscript was actually stolen in the 1970s, and then it was found and recircuted. I found out about it because a bookseller in Switzerland was trying to sell it for a fairly high price. (laughs) So I, I got an image of that, and that was part. That was not the part that was included in the collected work. So this is sort of a debut um, appearance of the flip side of page two of Weber's "Politics oh. as a voca- Vocation" manuscript. Very
0: cool. So my final question. Let's finish where we began, and I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. okay? So let's do the. What is it like? The what is it called? The something camp-
1: sortes campliana.
0: Sortes campliana. Okay. What is Tom working on right now?
1: Okay. And what she pointed (laughs) to was a passage about Mariana Weber, and in fact a passage where I'm discussing the sketch by Max Klinger, which so fascinated you. So the sentence is, this redemptive message, the redemptive message of, uh, and uh, inscribed in the in the image, the sketch itself that I'm talking about, is echoed in the dedicatory anniversary poem to Mariana that Weber attached to the back of the sketch and that she re- reproduces in her biography or life portrait of him. Um,
0: so does that have anything to do with what, how does that relate, if at all? It does a mean? lot,
1: actually, <laughs> <laughs> of course. One of their very, very best friends, the Weber's and especially Mariana's very close friend was another classical sociologist named Georg Zimmel mm-hmm. and Mariana and Gertrude Zimmel and Max and um, Georg were great friends. And my next book is on Zimmel <laughs> and Zimmel dedicated his great book on Goethe to his great friend, Mariana. And in some ways that idea of Faust study of Goethe of, um, Uh, Faust as as the, you could say, literary inspiration for modern social science, which is kind of my life's work to kind of show that, um, is really perfectly expressed in that great book by Georg Zimmel, dedicated to Mariana.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Well, Tom, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Carla.
1: It's been a pleasure being your colleague and teaching with you and being part of this interview.
0: And right back at you. You've been listening to new books in history. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.